Hello, and welcome to episode 76 of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods. On today's episode of the podcast, I talked to Chris Lotier, an associate professor of writing studies and rhetoric at Hofstra University. So I was originally thinking that I was going to write this dissertation that was, how do we read these people's rhetorical theory against their economic theory? How are they imagining the individual, what selfhood looks like, what interpersonal interactions are permissible or impermissible, uh, and how do we make sense of their rhetorical theory by way of that? Uh, and my committee essentially was like, yeah, that's, I'm still not entirely sure why, but they were like, yeah, that's not a great project. You'll hear more from Chris in a bit. But first, I want to direct your attention to a new CFP for a special issue of Rhetoric of Health and Medicine titled Queer and Trans Health Justice, Interventions, Perspectives, and Questions. This special issue will be co-edited by McKinley Green, Wilfredo Flores, and Fernando Sanchez. From the CFP, quote, With this special issue of RHM, we seek to increase further the focus on queer and trans healthcare needs as a means of enacting better healthcare experiences for such communities. This special issue therefore asks a central question. How can rhetorics of health and medicine scholars work to build healthy, just futures for and with queer and trans people? and especially our BIPOC relatives. We seek works that reveal how our field can, should, or does work toward concrete practices and perspectives that not only critique oppressive health conditions or discourse practices, but also enable just rhetorical practices and healthcare infrastructures for queer, trans, BIPOC communities." Please email 500 to 1,000 word proposals, excluding citations, to rhm.journal.editors at gmail.com. By November 1st, 2021, completed manuscripts for accepted proposals will be due March 15th, 2022. This special issue is slated for spring-summer 2023. The editors are willing and happy to answer questions, so feel free to email queries to rhm.queertranshealth at gmail.com. Chris Lotier is an associate professor of writing and rhetoric at Hofstra University in Hempstead, New York, where he teaches courses on professional communication, rhetorical theory, digital culture, and first-year writing. He recently published the book Post-Process, Post-Mortem with the Perspectives on Writing series from the WAC Clearinghouse. It's available for free online now. He has also published articles in College Composition and Communication, Pedagogy, and Enculturation. He holds a PhD in English from Penn State and a bachelor's degrees in English and Marketing from the University of South Carolina. A 14th generation Pennsylvanian, he currently lives in Brooklyn, New York. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Chris Lotier. 
What's your name, your title, your role, your institution? What do you do there? Who are you? So my name is Chris Lotier. Uh, by the time your listeners hear this, I will be an associate professor of writing studies and rhetoric at Hofstra University in Hempstead, New York. Um, I teach, uh, I was hired there originally to be the professional writing sort of expert or one of the professional writing experts. Uh, so I teach business writing courses. I also teach first year composition in a variety of forms and some upper level um, theoretical classes, introduction to writing studies, and then two classes on sort of digital culture, one called memes and trolls, and one uh, that's essentially about conspiracy theories and misinformation, disinformation. You said Hofstra University. When did you start at Hofstra? I started at Hofstra in the fall of 2015. So I'm going into year seven, I guess. I've been there six full years at this point. And where is Hofstra located again? Hofstra is in Hempstead, which is about, um, I think, probably 20 miles east of Manhattan, probably 10 miles east of like the Queens Long Island border, if I had to guess. Um, you can see the city skyline from the very top of our library, which is the tallest building on campus. So we're not all that far from New York City. Um, we're just east on Long Island. How do you enjoy living there in Hempstead? Uh, I actually don't live in Hempstead. I live in uh, in the city. I live in Brooklyn. You live so, in Brooklyn. That's awesome. Well, then, how do you like living in Brooklyn? Uh, I like it a lot. Answer. <laughs> uh, well, it, yeah. I mean, both isn't isn't. I grew up in small town Pennsylvania. The town that I grew up in, I think, has. <clears throat> they just got a new stoplight, so I think they have like six stoplights in my hometown. Um, I lived directly next to a cornfield for a couple of years of my life. Um, so there was, I mean. Brooklyn is like very, you know, very much romanticized, especially by like millennials. Um, and I'm not going to deny that some of those things are cool, uh, but it isn't, uh, it's not necessarily what I thought, where I thought I would be living. You know, I, I like small town life. Actually, I would have been perfectly happy to grow old and die in the home, in my hometown if my life had gone a different way. Um, so, but yeah, I do like living in Brooklyn much more than I expected. Um, and as a, as a Philadelphia area native and like a Philly sports fan native I actually have a certain kind of like little brother complex kind of like animosity towards New York in some ways okay. um, so if I you know if you had asked me before I went on the job market like if you could live in New York or Philly like which would you choose I would have taken Philly 100 times out of 100 um, but I do actually now that I'm in New York it has a lot of redeeming qualities I like it a lot I'm happy to be there um, looking forward to staying um, so, yeah. Well, you better be looking forward to staying because you're an associate professor now. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You're so, all the hard work. So you might as well reap the, reap the reward. So you're from a small town in Pennsylvania, you said. What's yeah. the name of that town? The name of the town is Harleysville. Harleysville. And is that where you were like born and grew up, kind of graduated high school, did all those things? Um, yeah, essentially. I mean, when I was... For five years of my childhood, my family lived abroad. We lived in uh, Waterloo in Belgium. Oh, wow. Interesting. Where the Battle of Waterloo was. What led you there? Um, we moved there for my dad's job. Um, and then um, without getting into too many personal details, there were reasons for us to sort of move back. Okay. Um, but, uh, but yeah, my family has lived in Harleysville or in that in the valley where Harleysville is located uh, for like hundreds of years since like since 1685, I think is the date. Um, so yeah. I'm 
in some sense, I'm like the first of, of a line uh, to leave, which is a weird thing. Yeah. Where did you go for your undergraduate degree? Did you stay close to home in Pennsylvania? No, I mean, so when I was growing up, I actually thought I would be either uh, like a sort of generic business person and work uh, for the the pharmaceutical company where my dad and my stepmom work, or I thought I would be a high school teacher. Um, but either way, I assumed I would end up back in my hometown. So I actually, uh, at age, whatever, 17 or 18, I was like, I want to, I want to go see the world for a while. So I moved to Columbia, South Carolina. Oh, wow. <laughs> I went to, uh, went to the University of South Carolina as an undergrad, uh, which was great. And I loved it there. Um, a very good choice in the long run. Why did you love it? What made it such a great choice? Uh, I mean, why I loved it ultimately is as with like most people loving most places, the people that I met there, the relationships I formed. Um, I, I think I benefited a lot being at a big school like South Carolina where nobody actually, there just weren't enough people around telling me what to do and nobody was telling me no. Um, so I ended up getting, um, in a way that was actually like, frankly, crazy. And somebody should have told me like, this is a bad idea. This is going to make you go insane. Uh, I ended up earning a degree in marketing from the business school and an English degree from like the arts and sciences college, uh, like concurrently. Oh. Um, so I took way more classes than I should have. And I was definitely way more stressed out, especially in my senior year when the reality of how many credits I still had left to earn uh, kind of sank in. But um, but it was really good for me to be able to like pursue these kind of fragmented interests while I wasn't sure what I wanted to be when I grew up yet. Um, and somewhere along the way, I determined that I would rather be a professor rather than a high school teacher. And so I ended up in grad school for English instead of sort of moving back home. That was actually going to be my next question. So you have these experiences in Pennsylvania, Belgium, South Carolina. When when was the moment when you decided to direct your attention to English and English studies? Because you've got this marketing degree, the Bachelor's of, of English Language and Literature. But it looks like you, you went all straight on through to a master's program in English. Yeah. Um, so I'm a... I'm a first generation sort of conventional college student. Both my parents eventually earned degrees taking night classes, um, but my family doesn't have much experience really in like academia as, you know, as you and I and most of your listeners probably have experienced it, right? Um, they were never, my parents were never full-time enrolled students. Um, so, and I didn't know anybody growing up who was an academic of any kind at all, right? Um, so, uh, so yeah, I mean, the question of when I decided or how I decided to pursue this thing, I, I started college as a business major in general. Uh, I took one semester of classes. They just weren't, um, they weren't sufficiently intellectually um, I didn't feel sufficiently intellectually engaged in my business classes. I could do the work, mm -hmm. but I wasn't feeling fulfilled by it, I would say. And so I added an English major at that point, just kind of like hedging, saying like, I don't even know if I'm going to finish college if it's this 
kind of like if it's this dry and boring. So I started taking like, you know, whatever business classes each semester plus a couple English classes as I tried to figure out what I wanted to do. But at that point, the English degree was either like, well, maybe I'll teach high school someday or at minimum, this is just like the thing that keeps me enjoying the like intellectual part of this thing while the business part feels kind of dry to me. Um, and I, you know, like so much of life is like these sort of serendipitous little, like somebody, uh, sometimes somebody who you didn't even think had ever thought about you twice once you kind of like left their classroom or whatever. I had a, I took symbolic logic as a freshman and I did, I guess, well enough in that class that, uh, but I never thought twice about symbolic logic after I left the class. Um, but my professor recommended me to do this. Um, we called it supplemental instruction. Essentially, like I became a, a student who went to the class with other students who were taking that class at the same time, like in these big lecture sections, 300 person sections. And then I would lead these breakout conversations with those students a couple days a week, um, which was really like me for the first time dipping my toes into teaching. Uh, and I had essentially like full jurisdiction over running these three 50 minute little review sessions per week. And in these 250, 300 person sections, only maybe like in a good semester, five students would show up to any given lecture. And often it was only like one, two, three students. So I got these like very close hands-on relationships with those students. Um, so that confirmed to me that I liked teaching. Um, and at a certain point I decided, or I think I realized that I wanted to be able to have the freedom to teach the things that I wanted to teach instead of having like a school board mandate to me what I had to teach. Uh, and so pursuing academia at that point um, felt like the way to be able to like have the freedom that I wanted to have. And because I didn't know anybody who was in academia, I didn't have any sense of like, you know, the relative security of being able to get a job as a high school teacher and the relative security of those jobs as compared to like the relative insecurity of the academic job market, you know, like if I had thought twice about the fact that like not everybody with a PhD is able to do the thing we're all hoping to do, I might've weighed my options differently, but I just kind of went to grad school naively thinking, oh, if you get a PhD, you just become a professor. Like that's of course the trajectory. Tough out there. <laughs> Very tough out there, yeah. Um, so, <clears throat> where'd you get your PhD? Who'd you work with? What did your dissertation kind of focus on? Stuff yeah, like so that. I went, I went to Penn State uh, for grad school. Um, my dissertation director was Debbie Hawhey. Um, her research and my research are really different in a lot of fundamental ways. She's much more of a rhetorician, although she does have a composition textbook. Um, although it's like rhetorical theory for contemporary students. So it really, um, it gets used in composition classes, but it's maybe really a rhetoric textbook. Um, but, uh, but we just had a very good working relationship. She was willing to like kind of let me be myself and figure out who I wanted to be as a scholar. Um, so, so yeah, she was my director. I had a theorist named Jeff Nealon um, on my committee. Maya Poe, who was at Penn State at the time, uh, was on my committee. Um, uh, and my dissertation was 
was pretty different than, you know, like the, everybody tells you try to write your dissertation so that it can become your first book, right. uh, which I was trying to do at the time. I really thought I was writing. We all a, are. <laughs> I really thought I was writing a rough draft of a book. Um, it did not become in some fundamental sense. It did not end up being the rough draft of a book. Um, but my, uh, the concept for my dissertation and I sort of, I still ultimately stand behind this thing. It just, I discarded it for certain other reasons, but the concept of the dissertation was that composition as uh, what we would now think of as like the modern discipline of composition comes into existence sometime in like the mid sixties to early seventies. At that same moment in, uh, in history, especially in like the industrialized West, uh, the structure of the economy shifts from being a quote unquote like industrial economy mm-hmm. where we manufacture stuff to a post-industrial economy that's primarily oriented towards services. And even in the 60s, all these scholars, uh, Daniel Bell, Kenneth Galbraith, I haven't done this research in a long time, so the names are fuzzier for me, but they're all kind of pointing to the fact that like communication is about to become a lot more essential to the functioning of the economy. Whereas in an industrial economy, lots of people are just functionally doing the job of a machine, but we don't have a machine yet. In a post-industrial service economy, everybody has to talk to everybody else to get things done. So I was trying to make sense of the history of the field um, in what I would call like, in some ways, like old materialist, old materialist terms or like historical materialist. It was like sort of a Marxist dissertation, actually. Like in what ways does the economy structure the thought of composition study? Um, And I was trying to trace out uh, a series of moments or a series of discourses within the field of like, we used to think about this one question one way. And now we tend to think about this question another way and chart out like, why did those sorts of shifts happen? Like why, why shift from grading a, a set of papers independently of one another to grading portfolios or in what ways does like um, critical pedagogy keep responding to new challenges of freedom and what can we like learn from that. Um, So that was what the dissertation was about. Um, It's out there online if anyone wants to read it. Well, it sounds pretty fascinating. Some pretty cool stuff for sure. But my question about your dissertation and your dissertation process is a bit different because I bet there's someone out there, maybe a graduate student who's trying to find someone to work with, right? And they're looking for someone who does similar work to them. And you just said you worked with someone, Dr. Halhe, who's quite different from you. Right. What was that like working with someone who does such different research from you? What are what were the benefits if there were any pitfalls? What were those? What can folks think about when they're choosing a dissertation advisor who might do work that's a little bit different than theirs? Yeah, I mean, I I think that everybody obviously, I mean, different departments function in different ways in terms of the internal politics of things, and some people certainly show up to their grad programs and feel like from day one, I'm like, I've now kind of hitched my horse to this scholar, this senior scholars wagon. Um, I showed up to Penn State originally thinking that I wanted to be a theorist, like a straight up literary critical theorist. Um, uh, my professor, Jeff Nealon, who ended up being on my committee, you know, like sat, sat me down pretty early on in things. And he was like, 
uh, he used to always say that he got the last good theory job in America, like in the late eighties. <laughs> yeah. He was like, don't be, don't be a theorist. There's not, there's not like really a future in that as like a straight up thing, but you can be a rhetorician or a red comp scholar and still do theoretically inflected work. You can still read all the stuff. You just apply the things, to different kinds of questions. So once I realized that, then I was kind of like looking around for a while to figure out like who, who makes sense for me to work with at Penn State. And they were like, I had sort of an embarrassment of riches in terms of really good options for people to work with. Um, and I thought for a while that I wanted to go in one direction that's maybe not worth talking about. Uh, and there were two professors there who were both great, who I really like as people and who I think their work is like tremendously good, um, who I considered working with. But then I, I felt myself being actually pulled in this kind of other direction. Um, it's also worth noting that actually the dissertation that I thought I was going to write, even up to writing my initial proposal, was pretty different than the dissertation I ended up writing. I thought it was going to be much more of a rhetorical theory dissertation. Um, I had been interested by the fact that uh, a handful of pretty famous uh, rhetoricians were also economists or the opposite, like Adam Smith, who's like really, you know, the most famous economist ever was a rhetorician. Um, and like Aristotle also has like, you know, in certain of his books, Nicomachean Ethics to Politics, Aristotle is talking about economic stuff and he also spoke on rhetoric. So I was originally thinking that I was going to write this dissertation that was how how do we read these people's rhetorical theory against their economic theory? How are they imagining the individual, what selfhood looks like, what interpersonal interactions are permissible or impermissible, uh, and how do we make sense of their rhetorical theory by way of that? Uh, and my committee essentially was like, yeah, that's, I'm still not entirely sure why, but they were like, yeah, that's not a great project. <laughs> so, uh, so I trusted they were right. Um, so part of why my dissertation didn't end up looking like my director's work is just a function of like the particular proposal I wrote maybe wasn't fully fleshed out. And they came back to me and they were like, well, what else do you have? And I was like, this other idea. And they were like, uh, we actually liked that other idea, which ended up being the one that I wrote. Um, but I will say to answer your question as directly as I can, I think that one, you always have to balance this question of what, what do I need from this person? Um, how did, you know, like at the end of the day, you become, you're trying to become yourself as a scholar, I think. Um, I would say, you know, I don't have grad students in my own department, so I this is unsolicited, you know, this is free advice to whoever else is out there, but, um, you know, you're going through grad school not to become a version of somebody else, but to figure out who you yourself are as a scholar, I think, and, um, and some people want to be, uh, like, a slightly different version of some other person, where they want to, like, take their mentor's work and, like, take it to the next level or do new things with it, um, that wasn't my goal necessarily. I actually liked having the freedom, uh, and, and Debbie was totally willing to give me the freedom to just sort of like run off into the wilderness and come back with stuff that I had found. And then she, you know, she's a good enough scholar that she could kind of be like, 
even though this isn't my expertise, I understand that this is either a good or a bad version of the thing that you're trying to do. Um, and so for me, that was really empowering, really freeing. Um, and I also, I've always been to some degree kind of a lone wolf as a scholar. I've never really been like in writing groups or things like that. Yes, um, same, I, re I, I connect to that. Sorry, I, I haven't said much recently, yeah. but when you said that, I connected to that. Yeah, so, you know, some people, some people like having other people checking in on them. They like showing other people their work at different points in the process. Um, and I respect that, but it's just not, uh, so much of my writing process is like this kind of long term. I just go out and read everything I can possibly find and think for a long time. And then I sit down and kind of like pound stuff out. Um, so having like hard and fast deadlines doesn't, it feels constraining to me rather than useful. Um, so a lot of my decision was actually more about just like what kind of manager, like almost like I'm in a, I'm going to pick my job and who do I want to be my manager? Like what kind of managerial structure is useful to me? Yeah, I like that. Let's shift gears. Yeah. You've got some publications out. Um, I've chosen a couple I want to ask you about. If there's another sure. one you want to talk about, just bring it up. Let's start with um, your article that came out just over a year ago in Enculturation. Uh, of facing Richard Dawkins or why you can't make a meme happen alone. Kind of a title reminds me of Dr. Strangelove. Yeah, um, exactly. Um, well, it worked. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about this article, how it came to be. And maybe you could start with what, how did you get interested in memes? Sure. So how I became interested in in writing about memes was very, um, very accidental. Um, I, I'll show Charles this, the listeners won't be able to see this, but I don't own a smartphone, right? This is the, this is the phone that I have. I'm not like, I'm not extremely online. Compared to listeners, he has some sort of like, I don't know, I would guess 2008, maybe? <laughs> Even earlier than that, it's like a slider. <laughs> it's like a slide phone with a keyboard. It still has like a, yeah, like a mechanical keyboard. I love it. Um, so anyway, so I'm not extremely online. Like I'm not somebody who's like deep into the memes on his own. Um, actually, so a number of years ago now, while I was still in grad school, I read this book called Our Aesthetic Categories. Um, the zany, cute, and interesting by, uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce her name exactly, but Cyan and Guy is how I'm going to say it, um, which I just thought was like, I mean, it won an MLA book award, so this is not a fringe opinion that it's amazing, but right. I just read this book and I was like, this is, this is like Frederick Jameson's postmodernism or something. Like, this is like a, an achievement. Um, and I was like, uh, especially the interestingness chapter that she writes is very much about things are things strike us as interesting because of how information circulates through systems and if something if you haven't encountered something previously if it kind of like circulates into your into your gaze and all of a sudden it, it can strike you as interesting especially if it's different than other things like it so i read this book years ago and loved it and was just kind of like i want to write something about this nobody in retcomp was really talking about this book yet um because she's a literary scholar or a theorist maybe you would say um and so one day, um, my wife, who's sort of the meme lord of our household, um, was 
he was talking to me about this thing that happens on a Reddit um, on this particular forum called Today I Learned. Uh, and people had just been recirculating this stupid fact about Steve Buscemi being a firefighter on 9-11 over and over and over again until it became like really repetitive and boring. And then they memed versions of how to present that information. Um, and I was like, I can use this. So I, I actually wrote an, an earlier article um, called What Circulation Feels Like is all about that. Um, so that's how I kind of got into the like reading scholarship on memes in the first place was to write this other article. I know it's a long preface, but that's kind of the answer to the first part of your question. Um, so the the article, and so one actually once I had written that article, um, I proposed this course. I created a course at Hofstra, um, which I call Memes and Trolls, um, which is the first step. I'm trying to think about how digital culture, the existence of the internet is changing writing. Like what are things that are new or different or distinctive about writing on the web as, com as compared to other places? Memes have obviously pre-existed the internet in some fundamental way, but they're obviously like much more pervasive. They move faster, they change differently on the web. So half, the, half of that course is just about like playfulness online, like memes as play. Um, and how does it change what we think of as being the meaning of a text? Where does that meaning come from? Who assigns it? How does the meaning of the, of the individual thing change as it circulates into different contexts? Um, you can start to ask really broad questions about how language works by thinking about memes, which are things that kids like to start with. So the memes become a hook um, and then you have them read Bart or uh, Louise Rosenblatt or you know these like reader response theory texts. And then the trolling part is like trolling didn't really exist. The word didn't exist pre the internet. Um, and these kinds of, the facelessness of writing lets you be antagonistic or ironic in ways that like physical speech can let, can enable, but it's harder to pull off. So anyway, I was preparing to teach this class and I was just reading all this scholarship on memes. And pretty much everybody who writes on memes will at some point or another be like, so Richard Dawkins, the, and this is true, the evolutionary biologist, Richard Dawkins, who's like really famous for being a, a kind of contrarian atheist also, um, coined the term meme in his book, The Selfish Gene. Right. So everybody who's writing about memes will at some point or another be like, so Richard Dawkins coined this term, here's what Richard Dawkins means by the term. And then they have to make this pivot and be like, but what he means by the term meme isn't what I mean by the term meme. which is actually like in some fundamental sense, really counterproductive, right? Like both in the sense of like uh, memetic theory, like Dawkins is memetic theory, like Dawkins is a Darwinian. So he would say like survival of the fittest occurs. And like, if the new meaning of the term meme is sort of dominant form of the term, why would you keep deferring to the less dominant term, right? Like Dawkins's version of the word isn't the fittest anymore. So why yeah. do you keep paying, even according to Dawkins's own way of thinking, why would you keep contribute to Dawkins? Yeah. Right. Not plus, needed. plus <laughs> like, I mean, Dawkins is a, you know, he's an atheist. Um, and so, you know, like in, in Bart's terms in the death of the author, like there's this kind of 
we have to, we've learned to reject the theological notion of, and I say this as a religious person, actually, but like Bart would say, um, we reject the theological notion that the author figure fixes the meaning of the thing, right? Mm -hmm. So if we think in those terms, Dawkins himself should be like, I don't own this thing. I'm not the like God who spoke the truth of the term meme into existence once and for all time. This thing will, it will evolve as it moves through time and space and that should be fine. Um, but also just in purely uh, linguistic terms, um, if you, I'm very much, I mean, I, I'm actually writing a different thing about this now, but I, I'm very much persuaded by how Nietzsche thinks about how language works in On Truth and Lies in non-moral non -moral terms, where he says, you know, a word, words are like coins uh, where, on which the king's face has been worn off, which is to say, uh, like a coin has two sides, one that tells you the value of the thing and one that tells you who minted it. Right, the king's face tells you who minted it. The other side tells you what it's worth. Uh, and Nietzsche says the king's face eventually gets worn off of the coin as it circulates. You stop caring about who created the thing because it doesn't matter anymore. Um, so I started. This article is essentially just trying to think about like why is it actually counterproductive both in linguistic terms and in sort of mimetic terms to keep deferring to Richard Dawkins over and over again, um, which is a question that for me has real world stakes about all sorts of other claims towards authorship, A, and B about, um, you know, there are lots of people who want to be like in prescriptivist kinds of ways, like trying to fix the meaning of words. Like this word just means this thing. And I want to say, no, the word precisely because words, I mean, this is Nietzsche's point, like words have to fit a bunch of similar-ish cases, none of which are fully the same. Any given word always has to do that. Um, so words cover like kind of like an area of meaning. Um, then a word isn't like a single point of meaning. It actually covers like a kind of broad area with a bunch of differences within that. Um, and that means that they it can slide around in surprising directions sometimes as it moves within that area and sometimes it moves into a different area altogether and you just kind of have to be cool with that in the same way that like that's what memes do right like it nobody would it's preposterous to be like who owns the meme of like the the jilted girlfriend right the guy looking at the other woman like yeah. we could we could be on some level like who took that initial stock photo or who was the first person to ever meme it but those are like the least interesting questions you can ask about those that thing because it it now belongs to everybody right like it doesn't belong to whoever created it anymore yeah that sounds like a fascinating article i'm gonna have to take a look, closer look at that yeah, please do. feel free more after this would you like to join Charles in the Big Rhetorical Podcast? The podcast is booking for next season now. The Big Rhetorical Podcast offers participants the opportunity to contribute to ongoing conversations within our disciplines and beyond. This record of conversations eventually will be a digital archive with the potential to impact the knowledge making and rhetoric, writing studies, and technical communication, as well as adjacent fields. Do you have a new book coming out? Are you hitting the job market this cycle? The Big Rhetorical Podcast wants to talk to you. 
The Big Rhetorical Podcast core ideals are similar to a community-based writing project, with an emphasis on inclusivity and localizing knowledge and in strengthening relationships among peers. Make sure to check out our back catalog of episodes as well as listen to our new podcast each week wherever you listen to your podcast. If you have questions about the Big Rhetorical Podcast, please submit a form at the website www.thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. You can also find the Big Rhetorical Podcast on Twitter at the Big Ret. Follow the podcast on Facebook or email us at thebigrhetorical at gmail.com. Welcome back. You've got a new big project out, though, that was published in April. Congratulations are in order. Thank you. For- your book, Post Process, Post Mortem from the WAC Clearing House, and that's available online now. All right, let's jump into your book project a bit. Okay. Tell us a little bit about this project. How did it come to be? And then maybe we can move from there into what is post process, what are its tenets, and things like that. Sure. So, how it came to be, there one of the chapters of my dissertation uh, was about the sort of the evolution of inventional thought. So I was trying to trace out like a sort of 50, 50 year trajectory of people used to think about pre-writing in one way and now they think about it in another way. And as I was writing that text, um, and I should note, this is um, the methodological things that I'm going to point towards now. Uh, I explained some of this both in the introduction to my book and in the conclusion to my book. I give like a, a practical example of, of how this would work kind of twice. But um, one of the things that I was doing in my research at the time was making use of, um, and I'm sure lots of other people do this too. I don't think I invented this by any stretch, but I would go on Google Scholar and Google Scholar will show you every text that it knows of that has cited a given text. So you can, you know, you can take some text from like the 1970s and say, okay, who else has written about this thing somehow? Um, and what I was finding um, is that there were a lot of texts written in the 70s and early 80s that were getting cited in the 2000s, let's say, um, that like used to be, people used to be talking about invention and they were no longer seemingly talking about invention anymore. They were talking about like ecological theories of composition or post-humanism in particular. Um, so I noticed this migration of this thing that we used to call invention into this, uh, into this new stuff that we were calling ecological composition and, and post-humanism. Uh, so I'd written that in my, and I was trying to make sense for, well, what actually happened here? So the the argument that I arrived at at the time um, was essentially, um, and I'm not the person who came up with this framework, but uh, Joe Marshall Harton has this idea that like you can categorize process weight, pro- the process area in composition studies according to its like sort of underlying conception of what the mind is and how the mind works. And that what he calls post-process, and we can talk about that definition a bit more in a second, uh, can be categorized according to another conception of what the mind is, how the mind works. So for for Hardin, process approaches tended to presuppose what he 
what he and what uh, philosophers of mind would call like internalism, this idea that the mind is self-sufficient on its own, that even apart from the existence of physical matter, the uh, even apart from the presence of other people, I'm still capable of producing thought. Um, Descartes is obviously like the sort of godfather for this in Western thinking of like, I can deny, let me posit that I could deny the existence of all the stuff around me. And yet I could do this cogito ergo sum operation. Um, so a lot of, you know, like when I was in, let's say like elementary school, we certainly were doing pre-writing in this way. It was like, you know, do these like mind maps or make, uh, make, uh, what are they called? Like little, uh, like outlines in various, of various kinds that um, you're just trying to get stuff out of your own head onto paper is, is sort of like an internalist version of pre-writing. Um, Whereas an externalist version of pre-writing that presupposes that stuff, that like languages, that other people, that physical stuff all contribute to your ability to think, uh, that version of pre-writing would be way less concerned about getting stuff out of your head and way more about uh, connecting your own mind up to stuff that's already kind of around you. Like you need to go read more or you like write some stuff down and then you look at it and you move it around or you take things other people wrote and you make like a mosaic of it. Um, so that would be an externalist version of, uh, of like pre-writing. Uh, and what I was trying to argue in that piece, which was, which was a dissertation chapter and then also got published as a standalone article um, called Around 1986. Um, published in three C's, I think in 2016. Um, what I was arguing there is that like, at one point in history, almost every, basically every pre-writing, every inventional model pre-1986 seems to have been internalist. And then if you look at 1986, like late 1985 into 1987, it seems to be the sort of golden period in which a handful of key scholars uh, the people I'm talking about there uh, are Karen Burke Lefevre, Marilyn Cooper, James Reither, and James Porter. Um, four people in particular start to be like, no, we can. We need to start imagining these externalist versions of pre-writing. Actually, this narrow way of thinking that's been prescribed to us by process approaches is is artificially limiting, and we're not it can't account for things that we're actually doing as writers. So we need to revise the theory accordingly. Uh, and that takes like a long time to work itself out and eventually goes in a bunch of different directions. Um, Post-humanism, new materialism, ecological thinking, so forth and so on are all versions of this kind of post-process approach to pre-writing. Um, so I wrote that chapter, wasn't sure that I was gonna do anything with the rest of the dissertation and it turns out I didn't, um, but I actually had become really interested in post-process and like, I think this stuff is, I will say that like when I learned the word post-process, I was like, oh yeah, this is just like what everybody thinks, right? Like, <laughs> and then I started reading the scholarship and it was like everybody all over the place was like taking swings at post-process, being like these post-process thinkers are like, they're insufficiently, uh, they're not like honoring their elders well enough. Like, why are they taking swings at process? Um, or like this post-process stuff is so 
arcane and hard to like decipher? Like, why is it so theoretical and difficult to read? Um, there were all these objections. So, but I also was feeling like, I think this stuff is totally right. And it feels to me like nobody, the word post-process like became a hang up point for a lot of people it felt to me. So I tried to write a book that would essentially say, a lot of us are doing the stuff that post-process thinkers were asking us to do. We just aren't calling it post-process anymore. And maybe that's actually productive. Like maybe it's good that the term post, that like post-process as a term is kind of dead. That's why the book is called Post-Process Postmortem. It's like, well, this, this movement as like a term that has a gravitational pull for this set of ideas, that the term is now kind of dead, uh, but the ideas have now like sort of proliferated. Yeah. And so like, where are these post-process ideas in the rest of the field? That was sort of the project of the book. Let's, uh, let's talk a little bit more about that. Let's get, let's get a soundbite. Yeah. What is post-process? What is post-process? What are its tenets? And then what's the main claim of your book? Sure. So one of the, one of the main arguments in my book is that there have been two different competing notions of post-process in the field. Um, one of which tends to be hyphenated and one of which tends not to be hyphenated. So one is post hyphen process and one is post process, all one word. Uh, post process, all one word, which is the primary subject of my book. Um, before it was called post process, Thomas Kent was calling it a paralogic hermeneutic approach to writing. That's, that's a couple sort of jargony words that basically mean, the paralogic part of it basically means writing is not something that is systematic or systematizable. Like there is no process. We will never be able to learn a process that will work in every situation, right? Like the dream of teaching the writing process is that like, if I teach you these steps, which we all can kind of agree are like mechanical and oversimplified, um, the dream of the, pro the process approach would be that like, if I can teach you the steps, you will be able to produce writing at the end of it. Like that will enable you to produce writing better. Thomas Kent's suggestion that writing is paralogic is essentially that like every new writing situation is so unique that, uh, that nothing will ever guarantee for certain that you can succeed in a writing task. So that's what the word paralogic means. If we call post-process a paralogic hermeneutic approach, that's the paralogic part of it. The hermeneutic part is like, as I'm, you know, we've tended prior to post-process, a lot of people would have been like, obviously attentive to the, the reader's act of interpretation of any given text, but perhaps had been insufficiently attentive to the fact that the writer also does a lot of hermeneutic work of interpretation prior to trying to write a thing. I'm always trying to guess at what I think you are going to take away from what I'm about to write. And I write what I'm writing under the assumption that you will understand these words in these syntactical patterns in this way. And if you don't understand them that way, then I guess again, right? Like actually a lot of more writing is guess, test and revise than we had previously kind of, than theories had previously accounted for. And Kent would say it's always only guess, test and revise. The best you can ever do is to become a better guesser. Um, so in the most basic way, um, 
post-process assumes that the mind is not something that is wholly inside of your own head, but that your mind is a function of the languages you know, the simple systems around you, the physical objects at your disposal. Uh, in some, so Thomas Ken at the start of the post-process theory uh, collection says writing is public, situated, and interpretive. And by public, he means this thing about it's externalist. Um, by situated, he means like it's always different each time for different readers. And by interpretive, he means that it's hermeneutic. The writer is guessing as well. The writer is interpreting the, what they imagine to be the reader. Tell us a little bit about the structure of your book. All right. How did sure. you lay it out? What can readers expect as they dive in? Sure. So, you know, as, as with every book, there is an introduction. The introduction uh, partially just lays out this distinction that I've been making of like, there are two forms of post-process. Uh, the one, which is essentially, um, but I would in shorthand term as like the left-wing trajectory of the social turn. Um, this idea that like discourse communities still have power structures within them. That's one form of post-process, but that's not the part that I studied. And then I lay out, this is the version of post-process that I'm interested in. Um, in that section, I also lay out how my sort of methodology operates of like doing this, what I'm calling citational tracking of, I go and read a text and then I use Google Scholar to show me every text that cited it. And then I go and read all those texts. Okay, cool. and, and then I try to go kind of backward in time often to like, okay, so let's say I, I read a Thomas Kent text. This is the example I give in the introduction. So I read a Thomas Kent text. I see that Thomas Kent has been citing Donald Davidson, the analytic philosopher. Then I try to find out who are the other composition scholars who have also been citing Donald Davidson and I go and read all their stuff. Uh, and then I can sometimes, then I kind of sometimes go backwards from their bibliographies to find, are there other people that they're reading in common? And then I isolate those earlier scholars and I try to figure out who all was citing them. Uh, and so I try to trace out like a constellation of how ideas are moving through the field. Um, Cause it, and the reason for that, um, this is the point of the introduction or this actually doesn't show up in the introduction per se. So I'll just explain this. This is what I was thinking. This is the bonus feature of listening to the podcast. This is why I tune into the big rhetorical podcast every yes. week. Um, the, you know, I think that like, a lot of histories of the field tend to tend to be really focused on like in a given year, such and such person published such and such work. Um, and I think that that's useful to know in a basic way, but you know, a lot of really good scholarship never gets cited for whatever reason, it just gets buried um, or it doesn't get sufficiently appreciated in its own time. Or even um, like this is, one of this is the case that I make in the introduction vis-a-vis -vis Marilyn Cooper's The Ecology of Writing, which everybody cites all the time now. You can use Google Scholar and see everybody who was citing that in like the late 80s and early 90s. And they're all misreading it in a fundamental way. And Marilyn Cooper even comments on that in one of her works. Um, and then 10 or 15 years later, uh, a couple of people who actually understand understood what she was up to read the thing, kind of explained it to everybody else better. And then people started to reread the text differently. And then the text has a whole new life. Um, so for me, it's actually more meaningful not to focus on when a text was published, although that's the easy thing for a historian to focus on. 
the harder, but also the more interesting thing is to focus on like, well, who was reading it? Who was engaging with the text? What were they making of the text? Um, and if you can track that kind of afterlife of textual circulation, you can learn, I think, different and often more compelling things about the history of the field. So the introduction of the book is just kind of laying out um, why I'm studying post-process. I'm trying to make this case that like, even though nobody uses the word anymore, the ideas of post-process have actually ascended to normalcy in a lot of different directions. Uh, and then I'm showing how I arrived at some of my answers in the intro. Um, the second chapter of the book is just asking the question of like, what do you call post-process? So like different people call process like a period or a movement or a paradigm. Um, there are a bunch of different categories that one can use to define what process was. And a lot of them have sort of incumbent baggage attached to them. Um, so, and there's also been, you know, a movement in composition historiography away from making broad scale generalized claims about historic, historical periods. You know, we've, for the last, for perfectly good reasons for the last 20 or so, 20 or 30 years, people have only really written like local histories. Like, it, um, and of course, like at a certain level of historical precision, the local histories are, are more in some sense like accurate in some ways, but they're also partial. Like a, a local history can only tell you so much about a given thing. Um, so I'm trying to make at least some kind of argument that we need to be able to zoom out at a broad level of generality, make certain kinds of claims about like people used to do this one thing, people now do this other thing. Um, so I make partially an argument that we need to think about post-process as a, as a period because periodization becomes a, an interpretive tool for making sense of what argument a given person is making at a given period of time and a given moment in time. Um, so I take this boundary object, this text that Gary Olson had written in the mid eighties, uh, that's like, it could go either way. It's like sort of proto post-process. He's asking like Gary Olson was in class one day and he overhears one of his students talking about how she like gets really, she smokes a ton of weed and she gets really high and then she writes her papers. And he's like, that's interesting. And he becomes like, what other kinds of like, um, what other kinds of drugs or chemicals are my students taking, like ingesting or like what kinds of ambient stuff are they, like, are they listening to music? Are they watching the TV? Like what's going on around them as they're writing? Um, so in some sense, Olson is like getting pretty close to being an externalist. He's starting to realize like, maybe you take some stuff from outside of you, put it inside of you. And that reconfigures your mind. Like my mind on whiskey is different than my mind not on whiskey. And I, I write differently uh, or my mind listening to, um, like I listen to uh, this like Scandinavian folk radio on Spotify while I write. Cause I don't understand what they're saying. Um, it's just kind of, it's like melodic in the background, right? Like my mind on Scandinavian folk is different than my mind not on Scandinavian folk. Um, but if you read this Gary Olson article, he's like not quite sure what to do with these pieces of information yet. You can read it as like, oh, these, these are just other things that exist within the writing process. Like first I drink my whiskey and then I pre-write, right? 
or you can say, no, actually, everything is a little bit more complex than that. So I, I make an argument that like in order to make sense of even something like Gary Olson's text, you have to periodize it. You have to say this is a post-process text or this is a process text. And different individual statements within the thing will mean different stuff either way. Right. Uh, the other thing, but the the other argument that I want to make or that I make kind of at the end of the chapter is if you look at these texts that Com Thomas Kent was writing in the early 90s, um, before post-process was even become, being called post-process, um, he keeps saying we need a new vocabulary. Like he said, he keeps saying it like we need to reject this process vocabulary for talking about writing and we need to create uh, a different sort of vocabulary with a different set of terms that will have different inflections that will drive our metaphors in new directions that will enable new ways of imagining what writing is, how writing works. Um, so I end up suggesting that like we should probably ultimately think of post-process like more as a vocabulary, which puts it less in like competition with other stuff. It's just like, these are the words we use to talk about writing right now. Uh, and some of these things weren't words that we were using to talk about writing previously. Um, and then different different chapters in some sense implicitly, I don't do like a keywords thing. That's not how the book is structured, but um, different chapters have like sort of implicit moments of like, you know, nobody used this word ecologies. Nobody used, nobody was thinking about post-humanism before. Um, the idea of transfer uh, was not something that anybody thought about pre the mid eighties really, uh, or even later than that. Um, but if you, if you latch on the idea like, oh, now we're really concerned with transfer. It actually, the idea of transfer undermines what we used to think of as being the function of first year writing. You know, like there used to be this kind of fiction that first year writing classes would prepare students to write. You know, we're going to like give them the tools that allow them to write in all their different classes, right? And now we kind of acknowledge that there is no such thing as writing in general. There's only writing in specific contexts for specific audiences to accomplish specific goals, right? Writing is um, activity system dependent, we might say. Um, and so if we start to take, you know, I, what I'm trying to say is like, actually, I think that transfer is like a characteristically post-process notion of like Thomas Kent would say um, we're always guessing every time we try to communicate but there are some things that we can take from previous instances into future instances that enable us to become better guessers um, and so we can be honest with students about the fact that they'll always be guessing, but we can also try to train them in ways that like let them start to cultivate a kind of attention to situational dynamics, uh, cultivate kind of receptive skills that will let them be better writers. Thank you, Chris, for that dip into the book. I want to remind our listeners, right? It's post-process, post-mortem, and they can get that at the WAC Clearinghouse. Um, what's next? I know uh, this is an academic -y academic question, but what are you working on now? What's next? Sorry, can I actually ask, can I answer one other question about the book real quick? Yeah. And I'll splice it back in. I'm sorry yeah. about that. I didn't mean to move too fast. No, 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 you're fine. Um, I'll, I'll just jump into what I, this other thing that I want to say real quick. Yeah, sure. Um, so the other thing that I have really tried to do, or that I, one of the things I'm most excited about 
in the book, and I think this is a, a good job for any disciplinary historian, mm-hmm. is that I've, in some sense, I've really just tried to be a hype man for other people that I think are insufficiently appreciated in the history of the field so far. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like, and I, I think about this even just in terms of the ethics of what we do as researchers, right? That like, what we get to do, those of us who are more, you know, like blessed or whatever, whatever language you prefer to use to explain the good fortune that we have to be able to do this, this thing that's intrinsically meaningful. Um, one of the, I think one of the obligations that we have is like, we go off and we do, we get to learn all this cool, interesting stuff that we think is, is noteworthy. Uh, and I think there's like a kind of obligation to like bring that back to everybody else and just say, hey, I found this cool stuff out there. Um, and also even just to say, um, you know, like, I think this other person is great and maybe other people haven't fully appreciated them yet. And so let me just be the person who tells other people like um, how great this other person's work was. So one of my chapters um, is essentially about this idea that post-process is an incorporation of theories of reading, especially reader response theories of reading into writing. Uh, And so I I end up writing about both Martin Nystrand and Louise Weatherby Phelps in that chapter, neither of which is like particularly obscure per se, but I think uh, Louise in particular is just like massively, I think she's for my money, the smartest person in the history of our field. I think she's just like, a fabulous genius like like I'm startled by how smart she was or a smart and continues to be she's still out there working um but so one of my chapters is essentially just like look at all these smart things Louise Weatherby Phelps was saying like as far back as 1986 or even earlier like 1976 in her like master's thesis which she was kind enough to send to me um that like was totally underappreciated for 10, 15, 20, sometimes 30 years. And now we're all finally catching up to what Louise was doing way back then. So that's like one of the chapters. Another one of the chapters is about um, these three Canadian scholars named, uh, actually, I'm not sure if any of them are native Canadians, but they were working in Canada at St. Thomas University in Fredericton in New Brunswick. So this little, this little Catholic school on an island off the coast of mainland Canada, um, and their names are James Rayther, Russell Hunt, and Doug Vipond, um, Douglas Vipond. Um, and they were doing these like amazingly radical, both these amazingly radical things in terms of like composition theory, composition pedagogy, and they edited this like newsletter. Um, and, uh, and I just think like, again, like the rest of the field has caught up to these guys um, 20 or 30 years later, but you know, it's worth kind of paying homage to the the predecessors, the people who like who are out there doing this thing. And in their case, I mean, James Reiter has been he has one article in particular writing and knowing that's like pretty canonical at this point. But um, people don't necessarily read the rest of his stuff. Um, nobody really cites this newsletter that he had been editing for years and years called Inkshed. Um, which you can find um, out there on the internet, like all the issues of Inkshed and they're totally fascinating. Um, but actually Russell Hunt, who is like, I think some people would be like, oh, Russell Hunt is just like the kind of like the lesser figure. James Reiter is like the notable guy at this school. Um, you know, I went off and read everything that Russell Hunt had written. Um, and I was just like, this guy, 
This guy was super ahead of his time, including like in the mid eighties, uh, he starts calling for the abolition of first year writing courses under the pretense that they're just like not conceptually tenable, that we can't possibly teach students to write in them in the ways that we've been claiming to write in them. So we need to revise our thinking on that. Um, and other people got to that same position. Sharon Crowley is famous for espousing that position and other people with her in the early to mid nineties. But, um, but these Canadian guys are just like way ahead of everybody else on that front, actually. Um, so part of what I see my work doing is just sort of showing like these new things came from somewhere. Um, that there is a way of tracing even like one of my other chapters is about like writing about writing as like a, an answer to the problem of if if first year writing doesn't do the thing that we used to think it was capable of doing what do we do instead um writing about writing seems to be one solution to that problem but you can trace this back actually to what thomas kent was arguing like in the 80s so um part of what I'm trying to do is just ground things. And then part of it is like, you know, I've, I've been in email correspondence with Russell Hunt and, uh, and he's super grateful that somebody was reading his work, you know, as of course one would be right. Like he thought he was underappreciated for all this time. And so part of what I feel like I'm doing is just telling other people, go read this guy's stuff. Cause it's really good. You've missed it. Cause everybody missed it. I only found it like serendipitously like I'm not trying to claim any genius on finding it um I found it because I found this inkshed newsletter from a footnote in one of James Reiter's articles and I just started reading it, and I was like oh this guy Russell Hunt is pretty cool um and then I read all of his stuff and I was like oh this guy's really cool um so yeah I mean part of it is just kind of sharing with other people but part of it is also just trying to like lift up other people who I think are great that's awesome work. I'm glad you mentioned that for sure. Um, so what's next? What's next? Uh, what are you working on now? Yeah, so I have, um, I, I won't talk about articles because I believe in the double blindness. It, it might even be a better question then because I was I was actually going to switch it up and I can cut all this out. What do you, I was going to ask what you were teaching. You want to answer that question instead? No, I'll, let me just, I'll just ask the same question and I'll just go right okay. to the the book part of it. Yeah. Also, so, uh, what, so what are you uh, working on now? So the next big project that I'm working on, I'm tentatively calling it Dialogues in Dark Corners, Rhetoric Among the Trolls. That's the, that's the working title of the next book. Okay. The basic thesis of this, um, I'm not, I'm hardly the only person uh, that's moving in this direction. You've had some other people on the podcast actually. Um, who have kind of started to realize, oh, you know, Trumpism is making us confront the fact that like rhetoric really can be used for evil, right? Like there are dark arts of rhetoric and we need to start uh, figuring out how they work. And I very much do, I mean, I talk to my own students about this. I, I think about rhetoric, like we should be teaching it in Harry Potter-ish ways. Like there should simultaneously be like, you learn all the spells yourself and you learn defense against the dark arts, right? And we like, we've tended to primarily in rhetorical theorization pretend that the dark arts don't exist. We've, we've acted the way that people act towards Voldemort, right? Which is like, we're just not gonna speak about the darkness at all. Uh, and we've tended to just be like, oh, here are all the good things you can do. And that actually leaves you really susceptible to attack, 
So one of the as and we're dealing with the fallout of this right right now. Yeah. yeah. So the goal of the next book is just to go to these parts of the internet, these sort of dark corners of the internet where, you know, not the most ethical people are, uh, are actually, they're engaging in what I would consider to be like rhetorical pedagogies. They're actually teaching each other how to use language for ill. Um, so, you know, one of the chapters will be, I'm not the first person to, to point to this example, but, um, there was, and it's occasionally, it goes on and off the internet every now and then. There's like essentially the Wikipedia of trolls called Encyclopedia Dramatica um, that actually has very interesting and surprisingly sophisticated entries about like platonic philosophy. And uh, and they give pretty good readings of Plato. Um, so I'm kind of like, okay, let's look at this, these trolls teaching each other about Plato and what are they, you know, they're like Socrates is the original troll. Like, are they right about that or not? Or like, what do we gain from thinking about things in those ways is one chapter. Another chapter is like about um, these pickup artists who, who charge, you know, like, especially there's like a pickup artists are teaching their men, almost entirely heterosexual men, teaching other heterosexual men how to seduce heterosexual women. Um, and charging payment for this. It's like really disgusting in some fundamental ethical sense. Um, but it has a shockingly robust rhetorical theory and it's moved through like generations, like what they would even call like generations of pickup artistry. Um, and the, you know, these people are like going out and testing out their rhetorical theories night after night after night after night and seeing if they work or not, and then refining the theory and then creating new theories. It's a much more, um, they've moved through generations of pickup, honestly, much faster and much more rigorously, like in the last 30 or 40 years than like rhetorical theory has moved in the last 2000 years in some ways, because it's, there are these feedback loops of like, we tried this thing, did it work or not? We tried this thing, did it work or not? And they reject old things and they start doing new things. Um, so as terrifying as that is, and as much as like, you know, for um, the single women that I know who are going to bars, like as much as I wish that these guys weren't out there, like predatorily kind of using the dark arts of rhetoric against them. Like, I think the only way to start to fight against these kinds of things is to like actually go and read the stuff and figure out how it works and then tell other people like, you know, I, I can do the emotional labor. Like my wife doesn't even want me to talk about this stuff in front of her. Cause it's like so depressing to her. Um, but I can do the emotional labor in some ways bracketing that part out, or I'm not the kind of person being preyed on by these men. So uh, in some ways I see like, I have this, opportunity. I don't know if I call it an obligation, but I have this opportunity to do that kind of research and, and use it for the common good. Um, so that's where I'm trying to go next. So it's pretty different. Um, it's more in the rhetorical theory vein than the composition vein, but I, I tend to straddle the two poles anyway. So yeah. Cool. That sounds like a really awesome project. I might talk to you a little bit of it about it off air. Chris, thanks yeah. for... Thanks for uh, for sitting with an in it for an interview today. I really enjoyed yeah. it. Yeah, thanks so much for having it, and uh, thanks to all the listeners for listening in. Really appreciate that as well. Absolutely.
I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Chris Lotier. His work is pretty fascinating, and I look forward to seeing what he does next. If you would like to be featured on the Big Rhetorical Podcast, reach out. We are booking now for seasons six and seven, and we want to hear from you. Visit our website, thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com, and follow us on Twitter at The Big Red. Reach out because spots are filling up quickly. I'll be back next week with another new interview. Until then, always be listening rhetorically. The Big Rhetorical Podcast is produced by Exalt Digital Media, Exalt Digital Media, not for profit. This podcast was recorded on the sacred lands of the Tuscarora people, and we recognize and respect the people of the Kahori. Eastern Band of Cherokee, Haliwa Saponi, Meheran, Okanichi, Band of Saponi, Saponi, and Wakamal Suen. Music for the Big Rhetorical Podcast is brought to you by DJ Lang, Grapes, and Javelonius.